Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and this is week two of In Excess, our Lenten series exploring the topic of excess through the life of King David, who's really a perfect character for this because in many ways, David epitomizes both the nature and danger of excess. Because on one hand, David's considered Israel's most faithful, greatest king. A man, as the verse says, who is close to God's own heart. Yet, simultaneously, if you know David's story, his life was also marred by repeated, catastrophic moral failures created by the pursuit of good things like sex, leisure, wealth, power, to destructive extremes, creating disaster for himself, those around him, and Israel as a home. Moments we're going to explore throughout this series each week, using David to reflect upon where we need to identify excesses in our own lives, not for the purpose of shame, but in order that we might repent and discover a healthier relationship with each as we move towards Easter. And today's excess is one that I find painfully and personally relatable, and that is the excess of trying to do it all or scientifically speaking, do-it-allness, as I think Scott termed. A form of excess that I think is so ingrained in our culture that many of us feed it without even realizing it, or worse, without even thinking this as a bad thing. But that's a mistake. And to set up why, I actually wanna invite up Pastor Scott to help me with the illustration. So Scott, come on up, take your time. Gosh. Now, Scott, you are a musician, right? I am. And you would say you're a good musician? I'm passable. Passable musician. How long have you played guitar? Uh, about 10 years. That's a long time. That's longer than I've played guitar. Um, fantastic. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to play something easy. Okay. I want it to be something that you could do like in your sleep. Okay. I'm going to do what I did last service, assuming there'll be a change. That's beautiful. Was that like Green Day? I don't even know. Anyway... Keep going, keep going. Yeah, last service I had him do Smash Mouth by, uh, All Star by Smash Mouth. This one, can you do, can you sing the Star Spangled Banner while you play that? <laughs> Perfect, keep going, yeah. <laughs> now stand on one foot. No, the other foot. No, other foot. No, okay, keep going. Keep going, uh, yeah. While you do that, I need you to bag this for serve. Come on, <laughs> no, keep going. Don't stop. Pick, pick it up. What are you doing? All right, get out of here. Give him a round of applause. He doesn't deserve one. He couldn't do any of that well. Okay. What? No, enough out of you. You're done. Your illustration's over. <laughs> what was that all about? Well, I have a couple questions. Who would agree that Scott's a good musician, at least a decent one? Right? Yeah. Amen. But at the same time, who thought that the music he was playing at the end was good? No. Thumbs down, right? No one wants that on like a mixtape to listen to on the way to work, correct? So let's think about that. So we all agree Scott's a good musician who can play good music when that's his sole focus. But when he's, say, singing while playing a different song on one foot and bagging groceries, 
Does he make good music? No, he makes bad music. Which is kind of like, duh, right? Of course he's not good at making music, even though he's a good musician under such circumstances. Of course, we say. His ability to do any of these tasks well suffers from trying to do them all at the same time. That is obvious, right? And it's also my point. Because despite how obvious this is, with such a silly illustration, y'all, how many of us do this exact thing every day with far more important tasks related to family, relationship, work, calling? How many of us try to juggle 50 different critical things simultaneously because we've committed to as much doing as possible without regard to our capacities or the impact that all this doing has on us, others, and our ability to do any of those tasks well? Knowing that as limited beings, doing more in one area is inevitably going to cost us elsewhere and yet still choosing to pile on more and more and more and more doing until we drown in it. Still unsure? Well, let's take a quiz. I'm gonna ask you a few questions. I want you to raise your hand if this applies. I want you to leave it up. First, do you regularly stress about getting everything done during just your everyday routines? Like it's Tuesday and you're like, I'm not gonna make it. Anybody? Do you say yes to doing non-essential things even when you're already overcommitted because the thought of letting someone else down feels like dying? Do you choose to resent those around you, your partner, friends, kids, coworkers, instead of asking them for help or asking them to take something off your plate? Do you struggle to hand off tasks or micromanage and take back said tasks the moment you do hand them off? Do you consistently feel like you're failing at everything? Being an employee, partner, friend, child, parent, student, volunteer, even though deep down you know you're doing your best. And finally, do you ever feel like you're trying to play music while singing a different song on one foot while bagging groceries, telling yourself that you must be a terrible musician because you can't perfectly do it all, all at once, all at the same time? Anybody am I preaching yet? If your hand's not up, it's just because you're a liar, and that's cool. <laughs> Maybe this topic is a little bit more applicable than we want to admit. So let's explore it today. And to do so, I want to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 from the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, for context, this story follows an unbelievable stretch of blessing in David's life. He's become king. He's united all of Israel. He's won all these battles, all of which is climaxed with him retaking the city of Jerusalem from Israel's ancient enemies and declaring it Israel's new capital, relocating himself and the Ark of the Covenant, Israel's most important religious symbol to reside there. In other words, it's David at his absolute peak. He's got a 100% approval rating. He is hashtag winning, right? And all of this builds to chapter seven, where we pick up in verse one today with this awesome story. We read, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. So writing high, David gets this big brained idea, right? He's like, since God's given me a home in Jerusalem, 
I should return the favor. And what he's referring to here is building God a temple, which were incredibly common structures in the ancient world. Temples were these symbolic buildings where it was believed that a God resided here on earth. These spaces of worship and sacrifice, these visual reminders of a God's presence with its people. And this idea is interesting for a few reasons. For one, I think it flows in part from David's good desire to worship God. But it's also probably a little self-serving because building God's temple in his city would no doubt do what? It would no doubt legitimize his authority a little more, right? In fact, this was incredibly common in the ancient world. When a king would gain power over a kingdom, they would often make their home city the new capital, consolidating all that military and bureaucratic power around themselves before building a what there? A temple to their God, symbolically uniting that God's favor with their rule. Are y'all tracking with me on that? All to say, it's fair to question the total selflessness of David's motivations here. But what's more interesting than even that is how this decision would change entirely the religious life of Israel. Why? Well, let me ask you this. Why does David think to make God a temple in the first place? It's an obvious answer to this. It's because God doesn't have one yet. And this has been intentional so far in the scriptures and the story to this point. You see, thus far, the ark, the symbol of God's presence with Israel has resided not in a temple, but in this mobile tent that we see formed in the book of Exodus called the tabernacle, which highlighted God's freedom. How unlike the gods worshiped by all of Israel's neighbors, this God, Yahweh, isn't confined to a singular place. This God, Yahweh, the creator of the universe, no, 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 this God can be found anywhere, doing anything at any time, utterly free. Thus, to establish a permanent structure, a permanent temple, would, yes, make God's presence with Israel more visible, more kind of known, but simultaneously, it would change their very understanding of who this God is. All to say, it's a big deal. However, if anyone in all of Israel's story was worthy enough to make this decision, it would be David right in this moment, right? I mean, this is the most successful any of these Israelites have been at following Yahweh at all. So surely God's gonna be like, you got it. I mean, that's certainly what Nathan, God's prophet or messenger seems to think. He's like, go for it, bro. You're the man, whatever you think is right. That is until God speaks. Because spoiler, in the section we're gonna read in a second, God rejects David's offer and doesn't even really explain why. Now, the author of Chronicles who offers a later retelling of this story, surmises in hindsight that it was probably because David was a violent man, a warrior, and that God did not want a violent man to make his house, that God, a God of peace, wanted a man of peace to build his temple, which Solomon, David's son, who ends up building the temple after David dies, ends up being. He never has war in his lifetime. But besides that, God doesn't provide that clarity for David in the present. He just says no. Instead, the focus here 
is simply that David, Israel's most successful king at the height of his power, asked to do something good for God. And God says no. It's fascinating. Let's dive in. Verse four. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God begins his response to this good request by highlighting, I mean, the most obvious thing that he didn't ask David for a temple, stating that the temple or not, he is and always will be utterly free which is both a theological statement on God's character and a subtle call out, I think, of David's motivations. A little reminder that this God will never be subject to the political imaginations of any human king. That this God transcends any single tribe, building, institution, nation, or power concern. God wants to make that clear, but that's not all. God continues, verse eight. Now then, tell my servant, David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them there so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. And I have done ever since this time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. So having given him a lesson in his character, God now corrects what he perceives to be a little misunderstanding that David seems to have about the nature of their relationship. That is, in retelling David's story, God's like, hey, David, Mr. Big Pants, hot shot. Remember, this isn't about what you can do for me. It's the other way around. I created you. I, by grace, made you a shepherd into a king. Your story, past, present, future, is about me being present with you, loving you, guiding you, helping you, providing for you. So while it is nice that you want to take care of little old infinite creator God of the entire cosmos, that's not how this works. However, despite this rejection, God makes it clear that he's not rejecting David himself and saying no. Because then God does something cataclysmic. That is, God legitimizes David in ways beyond his wildest dreams. Check this out. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflected by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul the leader before David, whom I removed from before you. 
Your house and your kingdom will endure how long? Forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So despite rejecting David's wish, God makes this unilateral covenant with David formed from these two extraordinary promises made completely without stipulations on David's end. First, God deploys this pun. See, in Hebrew, the term house can refer to a temple like David meant or to a dynasty, which is how God uses it here. In other words, David comes to God wanting to make God a physical house, but God flips it on him promising to instead make David a different kind of house, to eternally establish his family as the dynastic line from which all the kings of God's people will ever come from. And that's not all because then God also promises, notice this, to fulfill David's initial request. But what's different about this? Is David gonna be the one to do the thing he wanted to do? No, he says, I'm gonna make a temple, you got it just not going to be you who gets to do it. God's like, that's a good thing that you desire. It's just not your job. Stating that instead, one of David's children will make his temple, making it clear that God, not David, will decide what's needed, when it's needed, who will be the one to do it. That God, not David, will determine how his story for the redemption of all things progresses That God, not David, will get to set the timeline for his purposes, which is humbling, right? I mean, altogether, though, God unconditionally establishes David's family as this through line for his story from this point forward, promising that God will achieve his ultimate redemptive purposes by raising up a king from David's line, a king who'd restore this world, a king who would defeat death, a king who would establish his presence and eternal kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, which spoiler is why we are all here today. Who is that king? Y'all Sunday school, who is that king? Jesus. Come on. Jesus. Son of David, the Messiah, the Son of God. I mean, this is the promise that brings us here. Y'all, this is as big of a turning point in the biblical story as there is this Davidic covenant. But for today, I just want to sit with this singular story because I find it to be just so relatable. Now, I've never been a king, and you probably haven't been either. If you have been, come talk to me after the service. That sounds dope. But I haven't been. But I have experienced getting an idea in my head about doing something that in the moment just immediately seems so good and right and just to me. A new career, ministry, project, relationship, something that just made me jump up in the moment so full of surety, ready to go. Only to be told by timing, circumstance, other people and authority, my capacities that I can't. Only to be told no. And y'all, if you've been there, that's as crushing of a disappointment as it gets. Am I right? It's devastating. But here's the thing. This is an insight into my sick brain. In the moment, I never assume that this no is right. 
that maybe God's telling me that's not my will for your life. That's not your job to do. That's just not for you. No, instead I get a little crazy. Well, I get a lot crazy. I get incredibly crazy. It triggers this tape within me that thinks that I should be doing everything. That never wants to stay within the lanes that God's given me, that's never satisfied with my life as it is, that always prefers the thrill of the next new exciting thing over just obediently doing what God has called me to do here and now. Because I, like David, struggle with excessive do-it-all-ness. And I think we all do. And I think that's because this excess uniquely flows out of these good desires, y'all. Desire to be wanted, desire to know that we matter, the desire to find meaning in this life, to make things go well for ourselves and others, these God-given desires that we misdirect and in doing so create this toxic, excessive form of doing. In attempting to prove that we matter, we connect our worth to being needed saying, I know I matter because just look at how much I do for others. Look at how much I produce for my spouse, my kids, my boss, my friends. Look at that. I have to matter. Well, that is until we get sick, we get hurt, we get fired, broken, rejected, burned out. We just get old and suddenly we can't produce like we used to. And then, oh my gosh, overnight, what happens to our worth? Poof, gone. Or how about this? In searching for meaning, we turn to the accumulation of money, possessions, successes, achievements, legacy, believing that if we can just accumulate enough, then our lives will be meaningful. <sighs> Except it's all impermanent, right? Every single thing I mention inevitably fades, it decays, it rots, it's vapor, it goes away proving incapable of creating lasting meaning. Or how about this? We mix wanting things to go well with our insecure pride and we become control freaks, egotistically thinking we alone know the right way to do everything, that we must control everything in our jobs, our relationships, our family, our lives, because otherwise some vague, ambiguous, dreadful thing will definitely happen. What happens, we waste away under the stress of thinking that the world rests on our shoulders while ruining and making miserable everyone else in the process. Am I preaching yet? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Y'all, this makes us so sick and tired. Is anyone else sick and tired? But that's the invitation of Lent. And stories like David's, you see, through them, I think God invites us to rewire these misdirected desires and mindsets that produce this excessive do-it-allness. To remind us that we don't matter because we're needed. Y'all, I got really bad news. The creator of the universe does not need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need any of us, which may sound harsh, but y'all, that's good news. Because what that means is that we exist not because God needs us to do anything, but because he simply wants us to. Because he, by grace, chose to make that so. 
Y'all, you exist as an act of love, not necessity. Isn't that good news? Am I the only one? That's good news. Our worth as image bearers of God is spoken over us, not made by us. There is nothing, 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 not a thing that we can do to earn more or less of God's love because he pours it out infinitely and freely upon us simply because we draw breath. That's why we matter. That's awesome. And as for meeting, y'all, our lives have meaning, not because we can create something eternal if we just pull our bootstraps up and try hard enough. Y'all, you can't. Everything you put your hand to in this life will fade. Our meaning does not come from what fades. Our lives have meaning because through them, one, we get to experience God's goodness, beauty, love, peace, relationship, creativity. But two, and more importantly, because we get to participate through them in Christ's eternal kingdom in his eternal work to bring heaven crashing into earth to fix what's gone wrong here to through how we mirror Jesus in every single day living, restore these cosmos through every interaction with our kids, friends, coworkers, with the cashier of public, with the stranger, the lost, the broken, the prisoner through becoming conduits for Christ, not our fragile little egos. Y'all, that's where meaning comes from. And of course, through this, God reminds us, and this is also bad news, but he reminds us that we're not in control. It's okay. It's okay to want things to go well for yourself and for others. But y'all, we must remember that we are not in control of anything or anyone outside of ourselves. Forgetting that makes us so sick. And y'all, it leads us to trample over others every single time. We're not called to be do-it-all control freaks. We're called to humbly live by faith, trusting that God's in control, not us. Trusting that God's working through not just me, but all of these people, past, present, and future, to do all sorts of things that I can never dream of, that I am certainly not called to do. Trusting that God is at work to fix this place, not just me. Accepting our gifts and our limitations as graces so that we can do just our small God-given part while trusting him with the rest. Which means that at times, y'all, we're gonna want to do something so badly, so badly, and God's gonna tell us no. But as David's story reminds us in that God's not rejecting us, For David, that no was about God having a better plan than David could see from his finite perspective. It was about David's need to recognize that no matter how successful he was, he was only ever just one small piece in an eternal movement that was so much bigger than his little deal. And y'all, that's such good news. And I don't know where you need to hear that. But the world does not rest on your shoulders. There's a God who wants more for us than exhaustion and burnout. 
a God who wants to take our excessive do-it-allness and give us grateful obedience so that in trust we can do God's will alone, not to earn anything, but simply as a thank you in response to the grace of this stupid, silly, insane, beautiful, amazing life that we've been given and could never earn. Doing our part and letting this amazing, infinite God do through us what we could never do by ourselves, grow life from death, turn graves into gardens and build a kingdom that is far better than anything I could make with these stupid hands. Amen, amen, let's worship.